Amen. Well, welcome. Whether you're watching online or you're in the lobby or you're in this room, you can type to or turn to Ruth chapter 3. Uh, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, we're in the series on Ruth. It's the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. It's a story about redemption and restoration of the life of Ruth, but it's also a story, and we all love this, about romance and about relationships, right? There's always a major theme in the book of the Bible. So the major theme, if you're kind of following major themes here, the major theme in the book of, of uh, Ruth is the theme of providence, which is that God is not distant from you, but is designing your life and is in the details, even if it's painful, and especially when it's pleasant, right? We, we feel that. And, and one of the sub-themes that we're talking about in this series is biblical manhood and womanhood, right? And every time I talk about this, it's like, like, nothing, like no other topic. People you know, are both offended by it and, and called up by it and excited for it, right? Like last, last week, I had several ladies say to me, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready, for, I'm ready for you to bring it to us this week. Well, it's interesting because last week was about Boaz. Now, does anyone remember what Boaz's name means? In him was strength. And, we're, and he's called in chapter two, verse one, Boaz is called a worthy man. He's worthy to follow. He's worthy to marry. He's worthy to emulate. He would be a good dad. He would be a good brother. He would be a good son. And the whole idea of Boaz is he points us to Christ and, and the, the title of his name, In Him is Strength, is a reminder of this. Men, it is not okay to be weak and pathetic. It's not okay. Now it's okay, right? And the women are kind of like, amen too, yes, okay. Um, but it's not okay, right? Actually, women hate weak men. They do. They despise them. They want to tear them apart. They cannot stand somebody who would be so weak because what a weak man does is he creates a hole and a gap where there should be something, where somebody should be doing something. And so last week we talked about Boaz. We'll see him again. This week it's all about Ruth. So this week we're moving from talking to the men to talking to the women. We'll, again, we'll talk to both. But it's interesting because we're, we're talking about this idea of biblical manhood and womanhood. And, and we're trying to answer this question. If, if your daughter at 10 years old walked up to you and said, what mom, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? Which is a very important question to ask in gender reassignment surgery day and gender fluidity day. And I'm not talking about not having compassion toward people who struggle with those things, but we live in a culture that's confused and corrupt. What, what does it look like if your 10-year-old boy comes to you and says, Dad, I've got, you know, what does it mean in my life to be a man and not to be a woman? Well, we want to talk about this. We, can, we can't just say tone of voice, distribution of hair, and internal plumbing, okay? We got to say there's more to being a man than that. And so what we did last week was we talked about manhood. Now, a couple things that we just need to say, and we need to say things that like I know in our culture, to say these things out loud is like, either, they, now by the way, Christians have always believed them, and, and actually humans have always believed them, but, but to say them out loud in a confused age, they seem profound, though they're super simple. Men and women are different. That's it, I mean, that's, it. that's a profound statement. Men and women are different. Now listen, now we are um, more the same than different. This is why we have to be sophisticated in how we think, but we are different. All you have to do is have kids to know this. My daughter wants to bake and cook and paint her nails and, you know, have tea parties. And my sons want to wrestle me and everything I give them, they turn into a weapon. I give them a, <laughs> I'm like, okay, just eat your grilled cheese. They chew it and start shooting me with a grill, you know, they turn it into a gun. And so it's like, you know, this, their boys and girls are different. Now, often how you have to talk to men and women is also different. We see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus is very hard on particularly the men, very hard on the religious leaders. And actually we see in scripture, God reserves his most direct and coarse and harsh language for men. But Jesus has hard things to say often to women, but he says them in a gentle way. Think about how Jesus talks to the woman at the well. 
He's going to call her out for having you know, five husbands. He's going to call her out for living, for practicing cohabitation. He's going to call her out for her idols, but he's going to do it very, very lovingly. He's going to talk to the woman caught in adultery. And he's going to come to her and he's going to say, I don't condemn you, but don't sin again. Go and sin no more. You're forgiven. And so we have to talk about this. Now, men and women, again, are more the same than different, but we are different. Therefore, how we talk to men and women has to be different. It's harder to talk to women for a couple reasons. One, women tend to be, and again, stereotypes are helpful to a certain degree, because okay, they help us understand each other. But women tend to be more sensitive. Like, for example, my wife will tell me something, and she's like, didn't I tell you this like 10 times? I'm like, yeah. She's like, do you care? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? But, and I should care more, and I'm working on it. Um, but, but often, what I, what I hear from women is, if you tell a woman something one time, something that you didn't like, something that you didn't you th- think was right, something that she needs to work on, often she'll carry it with her for days, weeks, months, years. So we, we want to be careful. Now, now, this is why, by the way, but we have to call women up, right? But, and sometimes you have to call women out so you can call them up, right? Because some people are sleeping. So I've got to call you out so I can call you up. I, got, I don't want to beat you up, but I've got to build you up. And, and you can see this. So for, give me a couple examples. And by the way, you can turn to Ruth 3. We're going to get there eventually, okay? <laughs> I, just, I, have to, I have to set everything up today. Um, so give you an example. So men's retreats, every men's retreat, if you've never been on a men's retreat, men, I'm going to tell you what it is, uh, what, what happens at every men's retreat. Women, if you've, if you've never been and you haven't, uh, I'll tell you what happens. Every men's retreat is the exact same. The guy gets up there and he goes, you guys are all idiots. And the guys are like, we are, we are, thank you. <laughs> that's the whole, that's the whole, it's like three or four talks, that's it. We're all like, that's it. You are the greatest problem. You need to repent. We're like, that's it, you're exactly right. You go to a women's retreat, I've never been, but I've been told, you are a princess. <laughs> you are a daughter of God. You need to focus on your internal beauty. Right? This is why years ago there was a blog written by a Christian woman. Christian woman writes a blog, and it's called 10 Men You Should Never Marry. The addict, the abuser. And there was all these really great categories, great, great, and it got raving reviews. And she thought, well, that was good. So maybe I'll write, uh-oh, she shouldn't have done it. 10 women you shouldn't marry. And the reviews that she got and the women that said, you don't tell guys there are certain girls they can't marry. She talked about the domineering wife. Who else is going to talk about that? She talked about the overwhelming, overbearing, overprotective mom. She talked about the woman who's easily angered, the seducing woman. It's like, well, who's going to talk about these things? We have to figure out how we're going to talk about them. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story of Ruth and Naomi. And we're going to talk about these because these are things that are important. In fact, one of the greatest compliments I got last week is I had a young man email me. He's got a couple kids, I guess. I've never met him. He said, I've been watching online. The way that you guys are talking about this Ruth series, manhood, womanhood, mom, dad, responsibility, I want to join your church because I want my children raised in that church. And I thought about it for a while. I thought, is there a greater compliment a church could have? Is there a greater compliment that could be given to a church? And that's the type of church I would like the most valuable people in my life to be raised in. And so with that said, let's look to uh, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and remind you, this, this all takes place in a discipleship relationship. Naomi is discipling Ruth. She's speaking into her life. Ruth's going out. She's doing things. She's coming back. They're talking about it. It's a discipleship relationship. We're going to spend a lot of time. There's only 18 verses. We're going to spend a lot of time 
just in verse one, and you'll see why in a second. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, so remember, this is her, she was a widow, and it's just her and Ruth. She said, my daughter, that was a term of endearment and affection, should I not seek rest for you? Literally, should I not seek a home for you? And then look, that it may be well with you. Now, I want to argue that that is, it may not seem at first, at first sight, that is a very controversial verse today. Here's what she's saying. Ruth, I'm getting older, and actually you're getting older. And one of the, what I would like to do for you as I think about your life is I would, I would like you to find a husband and a home. And that would be a good thing for you. Now, today, women are told the exact opposite, right? Again, we're, we're, and I, it's like I'm talking up here for you know, 50 minutes without notes, so be, be gracious to me because I'm, I'm, I'm talking about some very sensitive issues today, and I'm not going to be able to talk and put an airbag and an exception clause and your unique situation around everything, okay? But most women are just told, here's what you should do. You should stay single for as long as possible. You should get as much education as possible. You should not get entangled in any relationship with any man. In fact, if you want to take the extreme version, you should just take the birth control pill. If you get pregnant, get an abortion. Learn how to make six figures and find a good daycare. And that's what a woman should do. She doesn't need a man. And so the idea that this is a phenomenal idea, it's a, it's a profound idea that she says, hey, actually, it's not a bad thing for a woman to want to get married, for a woman to want to be a mom. We're not saying, we're not saying women can't work in the workforce, okay? We're, we're saying that that. For most of human history, two of the greatest sub-identities to our identity in Christ was mom and wife. And you got to go, well, why is it? Because I thought about this for a long time, because part of what we're doing, and this is good to know, whenever we're reading the scripture and why we're spending so much time just in one verse today, and is a couple reasons. One, we're always doing two things. One, we're exegeting, here's a big word, we're exegeting the scripture, which means like we're looking at it to try and understand it so we can apply it to our lives. So we look at the historical and the grammatical and the theological context. And then, we put, keep that right here, and then we're always exegeting our culture. Well, why is it that a woman thinks she shouldn't, why is it a woman's embarrassed if she wants to get married at a young age? Why is it, why is it taboo to want to have kids or maybe have lots of kids? Why is it taboo to choose the home over the workplace? Well, there's a lot of answers for that, but let me give you one of the answers. One of the answers is the four waves of feminism. And I know some people love the, I've met Christian women who love the, you know, the term feminism. They call themselves a feminist, and that can be an in-house debate. You know, Christians can you know, debate and discuss and dialogue whether or not you want to use that word. But there's, there's a lot of other people, like actually the average woman in the UK doesn't want to, isn't call herself a feminist anymore because of the baggage with it, because of the ideology connected to it, and because it's a political weapon used by many people. But let me give you the four waves of feminism that has infected and affected all of our thinking. So wave one happens around 1848. We're going to take a journey through history. 1848, here it was. Um, 1848, women, the first kind of movement for women to have the right to vote, women's suffrage movement. This is what many consider and why many point to as, a, as two thumbs up, feminism. Because feminism, wave one, 1850s, women get the right to vote, amen, very good thing. Next wave of feminism happens in the early to mid-1900s. Second wave of feminism is all about women in the workplace. We're not against women in the workplace. This is a good thing. But you have to understand, so, so what, working with somebody of the opposite sex who's not a part of your family is a new idea in history. 
it, not a bad thing. Just know that it, it's like, well, what's going on? Like, what is the Me Too movement? And what is sexual harassment? And what are we, what are we, what's paternity leave and maternity leave? And why are we, what's going on? How do we relate to each other? Do we leave the door open? Do we close the door when, when we're meeting with a woman or a man by ourselves? It's like, those are new questions. I just want you to know that. There are new questions in all of human history because it's been only about 70 years where we work with someone of the opposite sex who's not a part of our family. And so there was all these rules, okay? There was sexual harassment, this was all good. There was women need to, um, you know, women need to be able to get uh, mortgages. Women need to be able to take their husbands to divorce court if something happens. I mean, the second wave of feminism, also very, very good. This is women having all the same rights before the government and the business and the state. But then there is third wave feminism, which is, I would call it, women can be as bad as men. Uh, and this, this, the attempt was women want to be the exact same as men. So, so you, you had extreme feminists during that time not shaving their legs and not shaving their armpits. I'm serious. As a sign of we can be just like you. We don't need to shave. Y'all don't shave. We don't need to shave. But it was primarily about abortion and the birth control pill. That's what set off third-way feminism, which was well, we, we can hook up, shack up, break up with whoever we want to. We can be as uncommitted and sexual deviant in our relationships as men. The only problem is women aren't made the same way. It's, it, men are sinful and shouldn't be doing that either. But the effects on women are much worse. This is why since 1970 on, Google it, in every self-reported survey on women's happiness, from 1970 on, women report themselves as less happy than their parents, less happy than their moms, less happy than their grandparents. Which leads to fourth wave feminism. Fourth wave feminism is women are better than men. And I told you a little version of that earlier. That's, well, here's what I need to do. I just need to take birth control, get a six, you know, six-figure salary, find a daycare, and if something happens, I'll get an abortion. And I'll deal with it by self-medicating and drinking a bottle of wine every night. That's what I'll do. But I will be free. And this is why. Fourth wave feminism and transgenderism don't, because you can't say women are better than men and a woman can become a man or a man can become a woman. So the monster eats itself. And so we have all of this. It's like, so when you say to some, and, and part of the big lie is that, men, actually the, the lie is that men and women will find their ultimate meaning in their education and their career, which they won't, neither will. And so you have to say, okay, well, and, and so what, part of what we're trying to get everybody, like, what happens is, this is why, so none of the major law firms can keep women lawyers uh, in their full-time status after age 32. Go read about that. Because basically, it's like, women don't care anymore. It's like, I will pay you $600 an hour to fix this problem. The woman's like, I would like to have a husband. I need vacation. I miss my friends. I made decisions at 19, and, and I wasn't always, and a lot of people don't, men don't either. We don't think about, most women and men don't think about life past 30. And the problem is what happens if you want to meet sad people, meet women in their mid-30s who've been lied to their whole life and now want to get married and have kids and feel the tension and pressure of their biological clock. The saddest, and I've done a lot of counseling, the saddest counseling appointments I've had are situations like that. And so part of what we do here is we tell the truth. And we, t we try to let people have a, part of being a Christian is I want to see a long ways. I want to take all of life. I want to realize that, that marriage 
and children are ha- and grandchildren are half of a person's life. You don't want to miss out on that. Now, there's lots of grace. We're going to talk to single people. In fact, I'm heartbroken at how many single women there are in this church who wish they were married, but there's no good godly men to pursue them because the church in America has 10 million less single guys than single girls. So we got to win them to Christ, okay? And introduce them to these ladies. Now, okay, that's all verse one. Now we got to see how the relationship... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's hard. It's like you think about, think about the movie Frozen for a second. What happens in the movie Frozen? Uh, you know, in the movie Frozen, it's like, this is infected enough. So Elsa and Anna, guess what? They don't need a man. Elsa doesn't need a man. And Anna, I mean, she just, I mean, that, you know, she dates a guy that's kind of a, you know, he, he's, he's evil anyway, right? Because all guys are evil. They just wanted her money, right? Or then there's Kristoff, who's a dude from last week, masculinity minus responsibility. He's kind of a goofball, but he means well. Everybody loves Raymond, that's Kristoff, right? Everybody loves Raymond, no one respects him. So, so okay, so here we go, verse two. <laughs> All right, so verse two. Uh, is not Boaz, so Naomi's like, look, I saw this guy at church, you know, he's good looking, he's godly, he's got a job. Um, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, here, here's what he was doing. So basically, this is harvest time, which is also celebration time, which is also feasting time. And they, at night, really late afternoon, evening, what they would do is they, it was their way to count their money, check their stocks. They would throw all their grain in the air, and the chaff would blow off, and the wheat would fall to the ground. And so they would basically, then they would weigh it, and they would know how much the harvest brought in. So it was an incredible time of celebration. And then what Naomi's going to do, and I'm going to read it to you in a few minutes, is she is going to create a plan for young Ruth to make sure that she puts and places and positions herself in front of the right man. And it's interesting, because what we're seeing here is we're actually seeing what people call courtship. It's when a dating relationship is overseen and encouraged by an older couple. And I want to tell you this, because there are historically three ways people have gone from single to having a spouse. Now, I've got to tell you this too, that in today's society, marriage is both um, delayed and you know, dismissed, really, basically. It's delayed in the sense that people go, I, I've got to get my third master's degree and my postdoc and a second degree in Russian literature, and then may, once I'm $100,000 in debt, maybe I should get married. Yeah, yeah, so that happens a lot. And so people get, they get educated, that's an excuse, right? People don't get married because they're afraid. People don't get married because they don't have the right expectations. There's lots of reasons people don't get married. Uh, also, a lot of times, people don't get married. People say, have you ever heard anyone say something like this? It's just a piece of paper, Whenever somebody says that, I'm like, who told you that? You had some, some professor told you that. One of your friends who's two years older than you told you that. Because it's a piece of paper, that's all, it's just a piece of paper. So you would be different than the rest of human history. You don't need a ceremony. You don't need to ask God's help and blessing on the most difficult relationship you're ever going to enter into. You don't need a public ceremony to stand between God, the government, and every person that knows both of you to ask them to hold you accountable to these vows. You don't need that. Everybody else did. You don't. That's great. And so we have to think about these things. Okay, so there there are three ways people have gone from single to having a spouse. Number one way, the most popular way in the Bible and in history and globally, arranged marriages. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're a single guy, you're like, that stinks. If you're a married dad with a daughter... It's biblical. (laughs) It is so biblical. You're like, I love it. I believe in all of this stuff. It rises. I'm an Old Testament guy. It rises right out of scripture. Right? I mean, so you've got got God oversees Adam and Eve. That's the first arranged marriage. 
you've got Abraham, the, the, the patriarch of our faith, right? Before he's about to die, he's worried about his son. And so he's trying to arrange that marriage before he dies. Now, arranged marriages often happen all over the world. It's not in America anymore. And often they actually tend to be healthier and last longer than the marriages that we have here. It assumes that you live in an area, that you love your parents, that your parents are well-connected in the community, that your parents know what's best for you. At one level, you can see why it would make sense. Hey, maybe people who are already married should know more about marriage than me who've never been married. Maybe somebody who has, it assumes that they have a good marriage, somebody who has a good marriage and understands marriage and understands me should, should speak into this. Now, I know every once in a while people go, well, what does two cities believe in arranged marriage? Every single person under your seat, there's a number. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, we, <laughs> we're not encouraging arranged marriages, okay? But, but second is what we're seeing here, which is courtship. Courtship is overseen by a godly person, often a dad. And I want you to know that um, courtship happens until 1896. The first time we have the word dating in the English language is 1896. It was a euphemism for prostitution. Because recreational dating is sophisticated prostitution. That's what it is. I will buy you something. What do I need to do? What do you need to do? What do I need to do for you so you'll sleep with me? Is it two dates and three drinks? What, what is it? It's a sophisticated form of prostitution. Um, we'll get there in a second. But, but so for courting, what's interesting is courting assumes, it assumes a lot of things. It assumes a godly dad. It assumes the daughters love the dad. It, it, it assumes the daughters live near the dad. It assumes the dating can take place around the parents. And again, I want you to understand that, that until, you know, 120 years ago, this was the normal pattern for all Christians is what they would call courtship. Now, it's interesting. I actually knew a guy. Uh, he had six daughters. This is back when I was living in Royal Durham. He had six daughters. And I don't mean this in a weird way, but they were just beautiful ladies. And so guys were always trying to take them out. And their answer was always, talk to my dad. So I remember I, knew, I got to know the one guy, and he really liked this one girl. And he goes, he's like, um, I asked her out, and she said, talk to my dad. And I said, well, go talk to him and tell him what he says. You know? <laughs> so, so, so he goes, and he talks to, talks to uh, the dad, and he comes back. And he tells us that his dad, the dad said to him, you don't make enough money to marry my daughter. And uh, it wasn't like, an exor- it just, and, he, and I said, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to make more money. <laughs> and he quit his job, which wasn't very good, got re-educated, got a new job, made more money, went back, married that girl. It's biblical. <laughs> no. But, but what you see there is it was, took a dad who loved his daughter, who knew what was best, who knew what she was going to expect, who could, who could call that man up. And that's actually, a real, but it really is a biblical idea, right? Because what does Jacob do? He wants to marry Rachel. He works very hard for her. When David wants to get married and he goes to Saul, Saul, Saul says, hey, you've got to go kill all these Philistines if you want to marry my daughter. And in both cases, we see that often a love and desire for a woman will cause a man to work very, very hard. And what courtship does is it lets somebody come in and say, these are the things that I want to see happen in your life before you're ready to marry my daughter. Third is recreational dating or, or intentional dating. It could go either way. We're, we're going we're to vote for, root for, uh, intentional dating. Recreational dating is let me get emotionally, sexually, physically, romantically invested and involved in somebody's life with whom I'm not going to marry and somebody else is. And we don't know for sure because, I mean, people lie. We don't, we, but, it, you know, the average person, you know, probably has something like three to five of those relationships. That's if they didn't live in a major city and they didn't have a crazy college experience. And so it's like, well, the average American is preparing for divorce 
by getting overly emotionally, sexually, relationally, physically involved, and they're hurting their own lives, and they're hurting the lives of that person who's going to be somebody else's spouse eventually. Because you actually can't treat other people like a sexual, a casual sexual partner without you yourself one day you look at the mirror and go, I am the casual sexual partner. That's who I am. I can't treat somebody else like that and be engaged in that type of activity and not realize that I'm actually becoming the very same thing. And so what we're going to see with the rest of the time is how Boaz and Ruth um, walk together in this relationship. If you'll look at me at verse 2. It says this. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young men you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So she's going to encourage him, or encourage her, Naomi's going to encourage Ruth to put in place and position herself in front of Boaz. This is where people every once in a while go, is it okay for me to be on a Christian dating app? Yeah. I think, I mean, use wisdom and everything, but that might be a modern way of how do I put in place and position myself in front of the right type of people? You know, am I allowed to, there's a really cute guy and I want to join his community group. Praise the Lord. You know, I encourage that. <laughs> you know, we want, want to consider those types of things. So verse, verse three, all right, now, now give some, uh, you know, it, it, so far in the book, it's all been about character. We have no idea what Ruth looks like. We have no idea really what Boaz looks like. But, but the physical is important, right? We don't want to be more spiritual than God. There is internal beauty. There is external beauty. Verse, verse three, we're told about inter, or external beauty. Wash, therefore, take a shower, we'd say. Um, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. So we have to care about, you know, we, again, I've got to be very careful as I talk to women about these things, but the, the, to both of us, to both men and women, we have to take the appropriate action to care for ourselves physically. We don't need to be obsessed with it. There is internal beauty. There is external beauty, okay? You know, the guys actually need to learn this lesson more. I mean, guys should wear shoes that have tennis shoes, not Velcro. That would be a good start, right? <laughs> guys should make sure they have two eyebrows, not one eyebrow, <laughs> You know, guys should, should use breath mints. Guys should keep their beards trimmed, right? You know, guys should brush their teeth. I mean, it's easy. Women here, you know, this idea of washing, it's like, well, you know, everyone's supposed to say, well, what, what role does makeup play? Well, I heard a woman say this. A guy didn't say this. When it comes to makeup, if the barn needs painted, paint the barn. That's what, they, that's what she said. I didn't say it, okay? If the barn needs paint. And then look, guys, verse three, for some of you women, is gonna be very clear. It says, anoint yourself. This is the essential oil verse. Some of you have been like, I need to sell more essential oils. Okay, that's it. She says, anoint yourself. In other words, smell good, take care of yourself, then put on the cloak. Okay, that was, now we don't know for sure. Some people think that what that's saying is, um, it's saying probably something like, hey, stop dressing like a widow. And we don't know exactly what that was. But there was a way that she could dress that showed that she was in mourning. And he's saying, I want you to dress, not inappropriately, but like you are open to having a relationship. So she goes down and here's what it says next. Verse three continued, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. This is great advice. <laughs> Let him hang out with his friends. <laughs> when he's done, then talk to him. Okay, here we go. Uh, verse four, but when he lies down, and this is, you're gonna see why people don't preach books of the Bible or why people don't preach the book of Ruth because of verses like this, okay? And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. What? How many of you are like, I'm not giving my daughter this advice? <laughs> not great. Um, and she replied, verse five, all that you do, I will say, or all that you say, I will do. Now it's interesting what she's doing here. First of all, it's, it's an act of faith, right? It's an act of courage. We actually see submission at two levels, which I know, by the way, submission is an invitation for another person to lead. 
And you can be a very strong person and still submit. Ruth is a very strong, very self-sufficient, very godly uh, young woman. And, and we see double submission there in the sense that she is going to listen to what Naomi says. Though there's, it's an act of faith. What is, what's going to happen? The threshing floor is like, think of Bailey Power Plant. It's live, work, play space. That's what it is. People live there, they work there, they played there, they partied there. I mean, it was, it was, the, it was the first live, live, work, play space. And so she's, she's doing that by faith. She goes down and then it says she uncovers his feet, which is a really strange statement, but basically, actually feet are mentioned four times in this chapter. Um, but uh, uncovers his feet, it's probably a gentle way to wake him up. And then she lays at the feet, which is a, it's a picture of submission. It's basically a picture, and we'll see this in a moment. It's basically a picture that says, I'd like to follow you. She, she, she doesn't want a sexual, she wants more than a sexual relationship, not less than a sexual relationship. There, there's not gonna be anything sexual that happens at night. She's asking for a covenantal, committed relationship. And she has seen Boaz's life and she said, she's, he's the kind of guy I'd like to follow. Now, this is interesting. Uh, submission is never easy, but it's easier if you respect the man that you married. This is why we say, don't, don't date someone that you, you know, don't respect and can't follow and won't lead and doesn't know where he's going. And so she lays down, this is, well, this is what she's told to do. Now, if you'll look actually at verse six, we'll see what happens. So she went down to the threshing floor. So we had the plan given to her by Naomi, and now we see the practice of the plan. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. Now, this is interesting because there's nothing in this book that said negative about Boaz. In fact, we're gonna see uh, the way that um, he even responds to uh, Ruth in a moment is gonna be incredibly godly. So there has to be, there's no, we don't believe here that, that he got drunk. Now, was he drinking alcohol? Most likely. Um, but there has to be a category for enjoyment without enslavement. There has to be a category for there are seasons of feasting. And he is in a time of feasting. He is in a time of celebrating because <laughs> they had 10 years of famine and God has been so good. So he's hanging with his family, he's eating and drinking, and then he's about to go and take a nap or actually go to sleep for the night because he's very tired, because he's been working very, very hard. Verse seven, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the edge of the heap of grain. Now that's the way that you did it. It's like, it's like imagine you had like a ton of cash. It's the way you just like rejoice. <laughs> you, just, you just lay on it. It's like, yeah. I mean, it, it's basically, it was, it was to basically celebrate. It's a sign of celebration and it's a sign of security. I'm gonna, I'm gonna protect this. And that's how you'd protect it. Hey, there's, this is actually worth a ton of money, so I'm gonna sleep here as well. Um, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Okay, verse eight. At midnight, or the middle of the night, we don't know if it's exactly midnight, but in the middle of the night, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, this is interesting. Is there anybody else in scripture who was sleeping and wakes up and there's a woman there he wasn't expecting, Adam. This is actually to point us back. This is why this is such a picture of a healthy relationship. This is such a picture of the way things should be. This is a picture back to creation before the fall. So here Boaz is, he wakes up in the middle of the night and there is a young, beautiful woman laying in his bed. Would this be a temptation for men? Yeah, the answer would be all men. This would be a big temptation. And what, what we're gonna see here is that he is actually going to act incredibly godly, incredibly God-centered, incredibly encouraging, incredibly careful. He's going to exercise self-control, self-discipline, self-restraint. And I want you to see this. Here we go, verse nine. 
He said, who are you? Remember, this is before electricity. And, I mean, it's going to be pitch blackout. We don't even understand often how black <laughs> the night can get. So it's incredibly dark. He says, who are you? He can't see who it is. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this sounds strange to us. This is her way to say, she's not proposing to him, but she's proposing that he would propose. <laughs> uh, you could say it that way. I mean, she's basically saying, I would like to marry you. You're the kind of, I would like you to put, a, you know, it'd be, it'd be our way to ask for an engagement ring. That's basically what she's saying. She's saying, I, I, and look, look how he responds, verse 10. And he said, and this is what's so amazing about Boaz. This is why, again, throughout biblical history and church history and just human history, we've loved Boaz because he just continues to be godly in every moment. He, he, he responds in the middle of the night. Most of us, if we're woken up, we're not, this, we're not blessing the Lord in the middle of the night when, he, when, when somebody wakes us up, right? And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord. Again, prayer for her, blessing for her. My daughter, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Some wonder here if Boaz had, you know, he's a great guy, but if he had a low view of himself and didn't realize, wait a second, he might be able to have a girl like Ruth. Some of you young men, maybe that's what, or some of you older men who are single, you've been saying, I can't, she's, you know, she's too godly, she's too good looking, she's too funny, she's from too good of a family. Whatever Boaz is, he had some type of excuse potentially because he's like, what, what? It's like he took himself out of the game. And he says, you're godly. He speaks a word of encouragement to her. Verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a, here's the phrase that was used to Boaz, a worthy woman. He's called a worthy man in chapter two, verse one. She's called a worthy woman in chapter three, verse 11. This is why we're talking about biblical manhood and womanhood in this series because they are lifted out of and arise out of scripture as exemplary examples of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And what he says here is interesting. He says, all of my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. Well, how would they know that? Most likely because Boaz told them. He's been talking about her. He thinks highly of her. He's encouraging her. Look at verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. And, and if you weren't here in the last couple of weeks, a redeemer was, the really short version of it is, if a woman lost her husband, somebody in her husband's family normally a brother who's unmarried, could marry her and continue the family line. It was a way to protect the possessions and the property and the people and the family. And uh, the long story short is Boaz is a potential relative who could be a redeemer, but he's, like a, he's more of like a distant relative and so uh, of the line of, uh, uh, of Elimelech. And so he's, he's basically saying in verse 12, I could do this, but I'm actually not first in line to do it. Which is, is, there's a humility here. He's saying, I'd like to do this. I may, this is a humble thing to say when you're in a dating relationship. I may not be the best person for you. I mean, we're, I've seen this over the years. The two, I mean, people, when people start to make money, they close up. And when people start to get in romantic relationships, they close up. Because like, I don't know if I want to be accountable. I don't know if I want to be accountable with my finances because now I have a lot of them. I don't know if I want to be accountable with my relationship because it's very emotional. And I don't want you to tell me that I can't marry him, marry her, date them engage them. You know, eloping is the classic example of this. I don't want anyone involved in this. We'll just do what we want to do. Here, here Boaz is saying, look, there's a redeemer that's closer to you. I'd like to marry you, but I'm actually not first in line. There's a humility here with Boaz. Verse 13, remain tonight. So he gives next steps, right? This is what every woman wants. Okay, well, where are we? What are you going to do? What is the next step? What is the timeline? I'm willing to wait, but I need to wait while I know you're working. So here's what 
he says, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. So I'm going to love you deeply, but hold you loosely. Uh, but, if he will not, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So it tells you that. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning. Again, nothing sensual, nothing sexual. This was actually probably most likely for Boaz to be able to protect her. It would have been the middle of the night. The threshing floor is a dangerous place. It was dangerous for her to come to begin with. Uh, he's also trying to protect her reputation. Look at the rest of verse 14. Um, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. In other words, before it got light out and everyone could see who everyone was. Um, and he said, let it not be known, he maybe says this to a couple guys, that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he wants to protect her reputation because sometimes perception, even though they didn't do anything, right? Sometimes perception is reality. And he's trying to, ha he's trying to be above reproach here. So then he says this, verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, verse 16. By the way, that's, it's way more than he gave her the first time. He's continuing to be more and more and more generous. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, and he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. If you remember, in, in chapter one, Ruth said, I left empty, or sorry, I left full and I've come back empty. This is the author's way to show us she's not empty anymore, right? And also some good advice that whenever you're dating somebody, you're also dating the mother-in-law, okay? Your potential future mother-in-law. <laughs> Be very nice to her as well, okay? So he brings her all this. And then verse 18 ends, this is interesting, verse 18 ends the way that every chapter in Ruth ends. The way that Ruth is designed, all of the chapters end the same way. It's Ruth with Naomi, talking about what has happened, not sure what's going to happen next. She's back in the disciple relationship with Naomi. She's walking through what happened that night, not sure. Remember in chapter one, it's, hey, everybody's died. What's gonna happen in Bethlehem? We don't know. Chapter two was, I met this great guy named Boaz. I don't know if he's interested at all. Chapter three is, we had a great conversation about getting engaged, getting married. I'm not sure what's going to happen because there's another redeemer as well. So it leaves us off. Look at verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. I love the urgency of it. Not, you know, Boaz would actually like for you to move in with him and cohabitate for two years. And then if you'd be his living girlfriend for another three years, and then you'll do a four-year engagement. And then about seven or eight years from now, we'll celebrate your wedding, which is the classic, you know, you know exactly what that is. That's how it happens all the time now. Okay, so, so that's how the chapter ends, which I wanna, I wanna just pull out a few things for us. One, just being, I'm encouraged in this chapter, and I hope you are, how men and women are able to work together. How men and women are able to relate together. How men and women are care for each other, encourage each other, serve one another. We live in a society right now, right? What, it, what a divided nation needs is a united church. We live in a society right now that wants to put this political party against that political party, right? Wants to put men against women. Wants to put one race against another race. And what we see throughout human history and throughout scripture is men and women, they both have dignity, made in God's image. They both have dominion. They're called to do work. And they both have depravity. They're sinners trying to learn how to work together, trying to repent. That's what they're trying to do. I want to say another word to the single people because, you know, again, this is, this is the book of uh, Ruth is an interesting book to single people in some ways. Old single person, Naomi, not planning on getting married, not planning on having any more kids. She kind of says that in chapter one. She's older and she finds herself widowed and single again and late in life. That happens. I actually talked to a woman after this first service, told me that was her story. 
There, there's, a, there's, a, there's Ruth. Ruth is single. She, she finds herself single again through death, didn't want this, desires remarriage for her life. There's Boaz, who from all appearances seems to be have single his whole life. You know, what we'd say, and, and I, again, I, said, I think I said this earlier, but you know, our heart is we, we love, we, we don't want to just be a church for families or just for couples or just for kids. We, we're a church for every man, woman, and child. And so we, we, it's not a sin to be single. But what, I, but what I have found, and Jesus was single, Paul was single, but what I have found is almost every single person that I know, and especially every single woman that I've met that's a Christian, that's in our church, desires to be married. And I just want to encourage the single men. You know, I, we say this all the time, don't overlook the single women in this church. Don't be like maybe Boaz and think, me, me? No, yeah, yeah, yes, you. <laughs> you know, you, you could be a godly man. You could step up. You could initiate conversation. You could pursue a woman. To the married couples, you know, as we read stuff like this, sometimes married couples can read things like this and like, they're like, oh man, our relationship is so terrible compared to this. Or the way that we, the way that we got married in college or the way that we got married during, you know, the, what we did during engagement or whatever, the way that we set our lives up, we didn't do things right. There's a lot of grace for that too. It's not how you started the marriage, it's how you're going to work on the marriage and end the marriage, and there's so much grace in there. The, all of this points us back to Christ again, because look, we, again, in this whole, one of the ways to understand this book is that we are Ruth, the church, and I said this in the past, and that Christ, Boaz is like Christ. And what we see is Ruth comes to Boaz, and she comes to his feet, just like the church does to Christ, just like we must each individually. And she basically says two things. Would you make a covenant with me? And would you give me a new identity? You know, uh, Ruth's ultimate identity is not going to be being married, being widowed, being single, being a mom. Her ultimate identity is going to be in Christ. That's the identity that cannot change and can never be taken away from her. I want to read you guys, as we close, an interesting passage. The only other passage, I believe, in the Old Testament that uses the phrase covered with a garment. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a passage I'm sure many of you have never read or heard before. It's out of Ezekiel chapter 16. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God is speaking to his people Israel and he uses sexual, romantic, intimate, may I say uncomfortable language to talk about his relationship with us. And it's the only place in scripture where the phrase, I've covered you with my garment is. And so I wanna read it to us as we close. This is Ezekiel chapter 16. Here's what it says. It says this. Ezekiel 16, verse four. And as for, your, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. That would have been a modern day abortion. We throw you in the field and we forget about you. So not a good beginning to, the, to Israel's life. And then God steps in and he says this in verse six. And when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and you became tall and you arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown and you were naked and bare. And then God says this, when I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you 
and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. If you ever want to know, how did I become a Christian? That's the answer. God moved toward us in the most romantic and intimate language possible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who pursues us. We thank you that, at, like Ruth, we can come to your feet, whether man or woman, whether single or married, and we can find our identity in you, whether single, married, single again. Lord, I pray for the men in this church, Lord, that you would help us to repent of our sin, to repent of our passivity, and to embrace responsibility. Lord, I pray that you would help the men to lead. Lord, I thank you for the women in our church, Lord. Lord, I pray that they would understand their identity in Christ and their identity as a woman, not from the prevailing teaching of culture and celebrities, but from your word, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.